Boom, put boom, boom, side, B side, what side are you on? Well, hello and welcome back. It is another episode of A Side B Side Podcast. What's up, Adam? Not too much, Brooke. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I still have yet to watch any new movies because I've been obsessed with Peaky Blinders still. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to you got what, four or five seasons to get through before you can look at anything else. So five seasons, but they're short. There's only six episodes in um, each season. So I'm on like I'm almost to season four, which seems really fast. But, you know, six episodes a season. So, <laughs> yeah, okay, it goes quick. And they're about are like an hour long. Yeah, they're an hour episodes. long. A piece. Okay. And uh, it's amazing because a lot of British stars of course, because it's a British drama, but there's a lot of uh, British stars that kind of pop up in and out. Like Tom Hardy makes an appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember is, who else. Is Cillian Murphy the He's the, the lead, lead in that? Uh-huh. Sam yeah, Neill. Okay. Um, Sam Neill had a major role in it. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive, the, the people that they get, you know. But again, it's I've Netflix. I've heard good stuff. It is, it is very good. Like, I avoided watching it for several seasons. Again, the whole like Ted Lasso thing. I don't want to watch it. It's not going to be good. And then yeah, everyone's like, told me how good it is. So yeah, now it's not going to not going to live up to it. Right. And then I was like, oh, my, how mistaken I was, because this is great. Well, it's 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 a it's a sign of maturity that, that you could admit that. Though. Well, thank you. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I can. So I <laughs> If you are a Sons of Anarchy fan, Tommy Flanagan pops up. You'd, you'd recognize him from Son of, Sons of Anarchy. So again, mm-hmm. there's like a bunch of... If you watch British anything, really, you'll recognize a lot of these people. Does Josh Hartnett show up in it? Um, I haven't seen him yet. I don't know why in my brain I had him connected with Pinky Blinders in some way. Uh, no, I don't believe so. Unless he's in like the last... Could be. It's very possible. I'm not going to say he's not. He has not popped up yet. I don't know. Yeah. That's, I don't know why I had that in my head. But you know who does pop up? Sam Claflin, um, who you would probably recognize from uh, movies like The Hunger Games, Me Before You, Adrift, Snow White, and The Huntsman. And then Mm -hmm. also someone that I think you are a big fan of, Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Why did I think he was? I don't know. I don't know. Adrian Brody. I was just going to say Adrian Brody's in it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. The list of of shows that I that I need to watch is so long. But I will end up just adding this to the list as well. Are you you turning this into a Josh Hartnett podcast instead of an Angelina Jolie podcast now? (laughs) No, I I don't know why I thought he was in it. Uh, That my brain just decides weird stuff sometimes. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I was like, why? Like, there's a picture of him in like a bowler hat that I must have been from something else completely that I just put in that i just assumed was pinky you just said bowler hat peaky blinders yeah i guess i just like assumed the two were connected in some way there's there's so much to watch it's 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 awesome but also like it's kind of exhausting yeah and it it feels like every week there's something new and like 
yikes it's 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 a lot to catch up on and i mean i still haven't watched the most recent episode of the book of boba fett uh which just came out uh today so i guess i guess it's not that weird it was just over today i haven't slept in like a long time so everything's running together okay but yeah it's um, in, it's, it's intimidating there's a lot to watch i yeah, uh i watched a lot of old a lot of old movies this week and some new stuff uh the only new stuff i watched was another episode of ncis and uh i'm still working on how i want to talk about the story arc there but there's i think there's a lot to talk about because i'm very very conflicted and after watching all of the episodes they're doing they're it's a whole different angle and mm-hmm. it's unexpected like especially this week's el- this episode this week with wilder valderrama dealing with you know abandonment issues basically and it, it all of a sudden ncis is tackling like pretty heavy stuff in a different way than it ever has before so uh yeah i i really am going to do a, a segment on that one of these days once i wrap my brain around it but it just each week it just kind of throws me for, for a loop again uh, i did rewatch uh a movie that absolutely holds up all the way back from 1984 uh we mentioned last week we were talking about uh runaway the uh tom Selleck sci-fi film that was a bomb uh and another movie that came out that year that was a sci-fi hit was the terminator and i realized that i had not seen the original terminator all the way through unedited in ages so i rewatched that this week and man does that movie hold up it you know the special effects have their moments where you're like okay this is obviously fake but they were actually really solid and it's just it is in a movie that seems so out of time with this, with really the heroine of the, the, the hero, the heroine of the movie uh, it being uh, Linda Hamilton. It's, it kind of shocked me how good it was uh, and held up. So that was, that was a nice little surprise. Oh, well, that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. I know euphoria is back. Um, so mm-hmm. I need to catch up on another episode of Euphoria. And if you, like, all I think of when I watch this show is where do they go to high school? Nobody, my high school wasn't like this. And I ask my kids, was your high school like this? And they're like, my high school was, I'm like, whose high school is this? Yeah. That's- well, but I mean, like any high school in, in, in media, right? Like n- nothing was like, you know, South, uh, like where Buffy went uh, in Buffy, the, you know, like that, that wasn't like real high school. Beverly Hills 90210. Well, totally I don't expect them real, to be like you know? fighting vampires in an ordinary high school that only have I mean, over I, the hell mouth. But what I'm I, telling you is. is <laughs> touche. But I mean, like 90210 or the OC, you know, heck, even, I know, uh, I know, but this yeah. is like even way more. This is like so much more extreme. It's so much more intense because yeah. it's it's just so like I would I wouldn't even say college was like like I wouldn't I don't I don't know. It's it's just so very intense. It's a good show. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm hooked on it, but I'm just like I don't know where this happens to this well, degree. Do you think it's just over time we have to get like the the intensity level has to keep getting turned up and up and up, you know, because like we we had shows like 90210 30 years ago. So now Probably. we've got to do something that's more, you know, 
more shock value or more intense or more dramatic. Probably. And it's, yeah, you just keep pushing the envelope. I mean, as, as dramatic and life changing as Jesse Spano taking caffeine pills was for me at the time, uh, you can't really get away with taking caffeine pills at this point and being shocked, you know, shocking people. What did Uh, she sing again? She was like, I'm so excited. I'm I'm so so excited. Yeah. And she's crying. I'm so excited. And then she's crying at the end. And like, everybody Uh, was like, Oh my gosh, did you see that episode of saved by the bell? And now we like laugh at it. Cause yeah, it it was, but I mean, the funny thing is they couldn't like, they originally wrote it and she was going to be on speed. But they were like, oh, that's too much. So she's on caffeine pills. <laughs> and, and on like euphoria, they're literally like doing cocaine on the screen right. while having yeah. sex in a bathroom or something. I'm giving an yeah. exaggeration, but not too far off. I was like, yeah, that could actually be a complete scene out of out of out of the movie and no one would or TV show. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, just the level of. You know, in the shock value, like the threshold is so much different than it was, you know? Yeah. Well, look at us talking like we're old people. <laughs> Back in my day, kids. Let me oh, tell you. Fictional the, kids these days getting away and, with everything. And the TV had rabbit ears and you had to move them to get a good picture, kids. Do you know what happened when when your grandfather wanted to change the channel? You know who what he got? I was the remote. I had to go up there and turn that <laughs> off. We had four channels and one of them was just a U. We didn't know what that was. Back in my day, kids, The Simpsons was on the Tracy Allman show. <laughs> do you remember that? Like a lot of people forget that. I do. That. Yeah. Well, it was that that was the only thing that succeeded on the Tracy Allman show. So I know. And it was horribly drawn. At that time, it was like so, like mm-hmm. it was so raw. The, f- the first season is is really bad too. If you go back and watch the, the animation, has come a long way. Uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty it's pretty bare budget at the beginning. But hey, they stuck <laughs> around forever. They're still Which, going. I'd love to. Simpsons pull that will back probably up. be on TV when I'm dead. And Bart's still gonna be eat my shorts, which yeah. was very controversial back in the day. And now it's like it was what, yeah. Yeah, uh, because I was I was not allowed to watch Simpsons as a kid. No, my it, mom it was, hated yeah. the Simpson Simpsons. She did not like the Simpsons. Which is yeah, and so now funny. it's like, oh, this is this is the historical program of record that predicts the future. Yeah, seriously, seriously. Did you see the the, the Brady? They predicted the Brady brand as well. No, gosh. Yeah, they had. They had Brady in a in a blue t shirt or a blue hoodie with like the block Brady letter on his chest, just like the first like hoodie that you could buy from the Brady brand. Wow, I don't know. Maybe maybe the Brady brand did that on purpose, but maybe. But that's funny. Yeah, it's, it seems like everything has been predicted by the Simpsons, but it's also you have that many episodes. You're just you're gonna predict some stuff on accident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real quick before we jump into the episode, did you see the um, Spotify uh, Neil Young um, argument over, over Joe Rogan? I did. I don't. I mean, I understand what he's doing. I don't know how effective it's going to be. Well, Spotify but has I mean, pulled his. They pulled his catalog. Yeah, I mean, just 
the artists have the right to do that. I mean, we hear it during political campaigns all the time. Somebody will use a song at a rally and then the artist will be like, hey, you can't use that anymore. So, uh, well, just so real, quick, real quick, just in case you hadn't heard. So Neil Young, not a fan of Joe Rogan, and he told he gave Spotify an ultimatum and said, either pull Joe Rogan or you pull me and Spotify pulled Neil Young. So this is going to be interesting to see how it goes. Well, and, and the, the sad part is there is probably when you look at, and I don't have the numbers and I'm making an assumption here, but I'm guessing more people are streaming Joe Rogan's podcast than are listening to Neil Young. True. You know? Yeah, you're Which, right. This, I mean, for a for business decision, that's probably where Spotify went with it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this is episode number 79. Nope. 78. 79 80 what are we on 79 we're on it we're on an odd number because i went first last week so i'm going second this week okay so it's either 77 or 79 it's 79 it's 79 i know i'm keeping track i was putting you on the spot my friend oh i yeah i i only know if it's odd or even that's that's pretty much where i'm at it's episode 79 79 yeah which of course like you said you went first last week so i go first this week this week for the B-side, we are going to be talking about John George Hay. He is known as the acid bath murderer, also known as a vampire. We'll also discuss um, that and why he got that label as well. So John Hay was born July 24th, 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire. He was raised in a village of Outwood. His parents were John Robert Hay and Emily Hudson Hay. And Hay is H. A-I-G-H. But uh-huh. I wanted to make sure that I spelled that. Uh, I wanted to make sure I said it correctly. So I did look it up at the, the pronunciation. Yeah, because I was thinking like, hey, like horses. No. So John Robert, John, John's father was an engineer. And the couple themselves, the couple, the, his parents were actually members of the Plymouth Brethren, which is a conservative sect of Protestants. So the family moved to Wakefield when John was still pretty young and his parents were like really strict later in life. He'd actually recall suffering from recurring religious nightmares during his childhood. When he was younger, John became extremely proficient at the piano. He learned at home, taught himself mostly, you know, had a teacher, but you know, became really proficient and he was very fond of classical music. And he liked to attend concerts. So far, it doesn't sound like a, you know, it sounds pretty normal. It sounds like, you know, kind yeah, of a normal dude. Yeah, English, English man of, t- of town. Mm-hmm. John, along with being a very proficient piano player, was also a really talented singer. So much so, in fact, that he won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield, then to Wakefield mm-hmm. Cathedral, where he became a choir boy. Years later, another student at Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, Stephen Griffiths, would be convicted of killing three women in Bradford. Um, maybe we need to look into the school. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> so John, John Hay was described uh, at school as a brainy lad, but a bit of a loner. It's widely been reported that as a, an ambition as a child, he wanted to be a vampire. <laughs> Look, I get the vampire obsession because, like, was obsessed as a kid, was obsessed, still obsessed. I love vampire stuff. I don't know that I had ambitions 
of becoming a vampire. I don't think I was ever like, mm, when I get up and grow up and become an adult, I'm going to be a vampire. I mean, but my kids have crazy dreams, you know, like, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to be a ninja or I, I wanted to be a 1940s uh, private eye wearing a trench coat and a fedora and, you know, sitting in a, you know, office on a store. Chasing all those 1940s board, you know. gangsters of the day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and then a femme fatale would walk in. It was a dark, stormy night when she walked into my life. <laughs> Little I know that the storm in her eyes would be my undoing. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you are uh, supporting his ambitions of yeah. Vampires. Sometimes you when you're a little kid, you want to be crazy. You want to be cool stuff. Okay. All right. So after school, John became an apprentice to a firm of motor engineers. He leaves the firm after about a year and a half, and he takes a job in insurance and advertising. So when he was 21, he was fired because he was suspected of stealing from the cash box. So on July 6th of 1934, John Hay marries Beatrice Betty Hammer, Hamer, excuse me. The couple like barely knew each other, but John's extremely charming. You know, like some of those British dudes are. It happens. It happens. We as American chicks love a British accent. I, she probably was like, hey, your accent's from a different area than mine. You're kind of charming. Maybe it was the same. I don't know. Mysterious. <laughs> So four months after they get married, John's put in jail for fraud. Betty gets pregnant and gives birth to their daughter while John is in prison. She ends up putting the baby up for adoption. And then she leaves John while he's still incarcerated. Uh So John's extremely conservative family ends up ostracizing him from then on. I mean, you've been in prison. You've got this wife, not, but you're now like divorced. You've got this baby that's put up for adoption. I'm sure they saw all kinds of red flags for him. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, societal shame. Yeah. So upon his release two years later in 1936, John moves to London and he becomes a chauffeur to William McSwan, who was a wealthy businessman that owned amusement arcades. Like all I could think of when I was like researching this and it said amusement arcades, I was like, Mrs. Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Centipede, which probably weren't even in his arcades, but like those were the days, man, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're coming back more and more places, you know, like full, full arcades. That's so cool. Yeah. So John begins to help maintain the McSwan's, uh, McSwan's machines. He then begins to pretend to be a solicitor or what we would call an attorney named William Cato Anderson. Like he had a whole nother persona. Yeah. <laughs> So he claims to have offices in Chancery Lane, Guilford, Surrey, and Hastings, Sussex. He sold fake stocks that were supposed to be from his deceased clients' estates, selling them at below market rates. He was discovered because, well, you know, there weren't computers to spell check back then. And uh, his letter had misspelled Guilford. He forgot the D. Yeah, which Guilford is actually G-U-I-L-D-F-O-R-D. So he forgot the D. He's arrested and charged and he's sentenced to four years in prison for fraud. So he's released just as World War II begins. But of course, 
no lessons learned, and he continues his fraudulent ways, and he continues to get caught. John getting, he gets caught many, 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 many times. And then he begins to regret like leaving his victims alive because he keeps getting caught. Yeah. So he's, he becomes intrigued by French murderer, George, uh, George Alexander Surratt. I like looked it up and how to say it with a French accent, but I, I'm, it's not going to happen. Uh, um, that sounded great. I don't know. <laughs> sounded, good to, sounded good to me. So George's Georgia, George, Georgia, uh, George Alexander, he actually used sulfur, sulfuric acid to get rid of his victims' bodies. Oh. Yeah. So taking lessons from George, John begins to experiment with acid using field mice as his test subjects. And he discovers, hmm, they dissolve into liquid sludge pretty quickly. It took 30 minutes for a field mouse. That's, that's that's a long time. 30 minutes? Uh, you know, I mean, I guess it depends to on- To turn a body course. into sludge? You think 30 minutes is a long time? What are you using? I Nothing currently. I stay <laughs> well away from field mice. <laughs> Just, I'm like, I feel like that's pretty fast to turn an entire body of something into just sludge. I have absolutely no frame of reference. So I was just like, man, 30 minutes? Like, what's he going to do? Is he going to bring a book? Like, he's just going to sit there? Like, it's like it's like making something in the oven. You like turn it on, you go away, you come back. Got the egg timer. Yeah. Yeah. So the acid bath murderer was created. Born? Cultivated? I don't know. What would you? Whatever. Anyway, in 1943, John was released from prison and he began working as an accountant at an engineering firm. One night, by chance, John bumps into his old boss, William McSwan, at a pub in Kensington. William introduces John to his parents, Donald and Amy McSwan. So William is now working for his parents. He collects rent on their properties in London. John saw William's like lavish lifestyle and he's like, I want this, but I'm not going to work for it. Mm -mm. That's, you know, that's, that's silly. That's too much like, right. You know, whatever. So he's like, I'm just going to take it. So on September 6th of 1944, William disappears. But of course, it's like, we know behind the scenes because we're watching the TV show, what really happens, but Mm -hmm. everybody in the TV show is like, where is William? Where did William go? Did he Uh go on vacation? So John Hay lures William into a basement on Gloucester Road, and then he hits him over the head with a lead pipe, and he puts his body in a 40-gallon drum with a concentrated solution of sulfuric acid. Two days later, John checks on William's body, well, the drum containing what had his body, and discovered it it was pretty much dissolved. So John pours the contents of the drum down a manhole wow just turns the sludge yeah just yep so next john's like all right now i've got william out of the way what about his parents so he convinces donald and amy that william had gone into hiding in scotland to avoid being called up for world war ii draft so then john (laughs) basically takes over william's life he moves into the mcswan household And he starts collecting rent like William did. Well, the war is now coming to an end. And the McSwans are like, okay, well, 
why hasn't, where is he? Why hasn't he returned? They, they're not going to call him up now because the war's ending, mm-hmm. which means, okay, now he's got to handle this. So on July 2nd of 1945, he lures the McSwans to the Gloucester Road, uh, to his place on Gloucester Road, telling them that William was waiting for them to surprise them with a visit. Like he'd come back from Scotland and he was waiting just to surprise them. Mm-hmm. So of course, they're ex- super excited to see their son. And once inside, just as he had with William, John kills Donald and Amy by hitting them in the head. He then disposes of them in the same manner that he had as their son. He puts them in the drum containing the sulfuric acid. John then begins stealing their uh, pension checks and he sold their property for around eight to 10, uh, eight pounds, which would be $10,000 back then. Now it would be like $154,000. So then John packs up and moves to uh, Onslow Court, the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. John was a big time gambler. And by 1947, he was finding himself pretty short on funds because, you know, gamblers tend to do that. That tends to happen. The house Mm -hmm. tends to win. Right. John sought his next victims because, you know, He's already broke. He's already a gambler. He's already a murderer. Why not kill some more people? It worked last time. Dr. Archibald Henderson and Rose, his wife, were his next unfortunate targets. John pretends to be interested in purchasing a house that the Hendersons were selling. They learned of John's piano prowess, and Rose invites him to play at their housewarming party. While at the party at the Henderson's flat, John steals Archibald's reviver. Then uh, he rented a workshop on Leopold Road in Crawley, Sussex. So he then moves the acid drums over from his Gloucester Road location to the new location on Leopold Road in Crawley. On February 12th of 1948, he and Archibald go to his new workshop under the guise of showing Archibald an invention. I got something to show you, man. You're going to really love this. It's really cool. The best thing since sliced bread. So once inside the shop, John shoots Archibald with a revolver that, yes, he had stolen from Archibald. He shoots the man with his own revolver. Then, telling Rose that Archibald had fallen ill at the workshop, he lures her there and he shoots her as well. He then disposes of their bodies in the acid drums that he had just moved over from the old location to the new location. And he forges a letter with their signatures, allowing him to sell their possessions again for 8,000 pounds or now $154,000. He kept their car and their dog. I mean, the man needs a ride and a companion, I guess, right? I guess, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like that's like even creepier like you stole their dog man you killed them and stole their dog yeah like, i don't want you to hurt like, the I dog can't, i can't kill the dog and like, i guess you know just you can hang out dog. i mean i get that i don't want him to hurt the dog give the dog up like you stole their dog gosh yeah well john was, people would ask questions be like hey isn't that such and such dog yeah yeah it would seem so man that dog looks familiar yeah so john wasn't quite done with his spree 
Not just yet. Next was a fellow resident at the Onslow Court Hotel, Olive Durand Deacon. She was 69 years old and she was the widow of John Durand Deacon. John, posing as an engineer, uh, and Olive was a self-proclaimed inventor. She tells John all about her idea for fake fingernails. Oh, which is like a bad idea. Yeah, she was ahead of her time. He was on to something. Yeah, she really was. So on February 18th of 1949, John Fiennes' interest in her invention invites her to his Leopold Road workshop. Oh, yeah, we'll work together. This will be great. When she's inside, when Olive goes inside, he shoots her with a 38 Webley, another weapon stolen from Archibald Henderson. He then took off all her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat, and he puts her in an acid bath drum. Two days later, on February 20th, Olive's friend Constance Lane reports her missing. Since the last known location for Olive was the Leopold Road workshop, that's where police start to look because, you know, her friend has has tipped the police off. She's missing. It didn't take detectives long at all to discover that John's record to discover John's record of fraud and his theft because they searched the workshop. Authorities found John's attache case. I just, I feel like attache is like classier than briefcase. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's the yeah. same, it's a, it means the same thing, but it just sounds classier. It sounds better. So inside the attache case was a dry cleaner's receipt for a Persian lamb coat. It was Olive's coat, of course. Mm-hmm. There were also papers inside that made reference to both the McSwans and the Hendersons. Mm. So here's where John's trouble really catches up to him. The Leopold Road workshop did not have a drain like his previous shop. So he ended up planning. Yeah. Like he didn't think about that when he was doing the like walkthrough. Wait, I need a drain. I need a drain. What am I going to do with this? It's like, oh, but the location's so good. (laughs) The view, view outside the, outside the workshop for the acid drums. It didn't have a drain like the previous shop. So he dumped Olive's remains on a rubble pile behind the workshop. I'm not a murderer, but I, even I'm like, "Mm, that was kind of dumb, man. Yeah. It's like you, you didn't like roll it down the street. You didn't, you know, you just put it you, directly you put it behind right her. behind your workshop where you killed her. Yeah. That was kind no of one will look in the back. Yeah. Lack poor uh, prior. What is it? Lack of lack of prior poor planning. I, you know, the phrase I'm poor planning. I don't know. Whatever. There's a phrase. If you plan poor, you're going to get poorly planned. <laughs> Um, On March 1st of 1949 at 4.15 p.m., Detective Inspector Albert Webb, I love the names there too, like D.I. Webb, Detective Mm. Inspector Webb, instead of like Sergeant or Detective. Anyway, sorry, getting sidetracked. I wonder if it's like the the, the reverse is true. If they're like, oh, that's such a cool way to say Detective Inspector, or they're just like, eh. I don't know. But I just feel like Detective Inspector as opposed to like Officer yeah, it sounds sounds way cooler. Yeah. Yeah. So Detective or DI Albert Webb was waiting for John at Leopold Road, and John was taken to the station for questioning. During his questioning, John asks DI Webb, Tell me, frankly, what are the chances of anybody being released from Broadmoor? So Broadmoor, we've talked about it before, but in case you 
you, you don't know, Broadmoor is a high security, high security psychiatric hospital. Hmm. So it sounds like he's doing a little planning here. Yeah, he's like, if I ended up there, how would I get out? Just mm-hmm. theoretically. Mm-hmm. Like, what are my chances? I, I took that as either his chances of escape or his chances of just being released. Uh, yeah. So D.I. Webb informs John that he could not discuss such a thing. John's reply was, well, if I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. So then John confesses to the murder of Olive Durant Deacon. But he says, how can you prove murder if there's no body? I've destroyed her with acid. You'll find the sludge remains at Leopold Road. Every trace is gone. He then went on to confess to the murders of the McSwans, the Hendersons, and three other people. A young man named Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith, although the last three could not be confirmed. Because there was nobody. Right. So John Hayes' trial was held at Luz Assis, uh, and during his trial, he pleads insanity, claiming that he had drunk the blood of his victims and it made him mad, hence the vampire thing. Wow. I, I had forgotten about the vampire thing. It's full circle now. Mm-hmm. Of course, no evidence was found to substantiate that he actually drank his victim's blood. So it might just be a claim. John also said that he had dreams as a young boy that were dominated by flood thoughts. He said he was in a car accident in March of 1944 and that the dream came back to him. He said, quote, I saw before me a forest of crucifixes, which gradually turned into trees. At first, there appeared to be a dew or rain dripping from the branches. But as I approached, I realized it was blood. The whole forest began to writhe and the trees dark and erect to ooze blood. A man went from each tree catching the blood. When the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move. The prosecution, which was led by Attorney General Sir Hartley Shawcross, urged the jury to reject John's claims of insanity, saying that he had actually acted with malice and forethought. Remember, he was asking D.I. Webb about getting out of Broadmoor. Mm -hmm. Defense attorney Sir David Fife used a bunch of counter witnesses to vouch for John's mental health, including a man named Henry Yellowleaves, who's a British physician a British physician, British physician, say that five times fast. He was a British nope. physician and he was chief medical officer of the UK from 1973 to 1984. That's well after this case, but it kind of shows you his prominence. Mm-hmm. Henry claimed that John had a paranoid constitution saying that the absolute callous, cheerful, bland, and almost friendly indifference of the accused to the crimes, which freely admit he freely admits to having committed, is unique in my experience. That's kind of like a weird description of someone. Like cheerful, yeah. callous, bland. Like it doesn't, and I don't know. There's a lot that. going on there. That's that that's a lot of confusing contradictory yeah. things. Yeah. So John believed that his victims, uh, if his victims' bodies couldn't be found, then a murder conviction would be impossible. But he was mistaken, of course. It took just 17 minutes for the jury to find him guilty. Justice Travis Humphrey sentenced John to death, 
And on August 10th of 1949, John drank a glass of brandy before being put to death by hanging. He was hung or hanged by renowned executioner, Albert Pierpont. He uh, is said, Albert is said to have killed between 400 to 550 criminals, including high profile killers, the Blackout Ripper, the Rillington Place Strangler, who's John Christie. We talked about him in episode 62 and the Blackpool Poisoner. Before his execution, John wrote a letter to his girlfriend. It always amazes me that these serial killers have girlfriends. Yeah, no, it's it's it says a it says a lot. <sighs> he said in his letter, I don't know what it says, but it's not good. It, it's not good. He says in his letter, it is difficult to say farewell under these circumstances, but you will understand that it will you will always be in my thoughts. You know, I have been proud of our association. It has always been an honorable one. I shall remember your great kindness and devotion. Now I must leave you. If that's not the most, I don't know. Well, I mean, clearly just the man was a poet. Uh, it was such, so, uh, such romance. And, it was uh, so romantic. Such I passion. Have been, I have been I mean, proud of our association. Like when you, when you compare what he talked, how he talked about his dream with the trees and the blood, that right? was poetic. This <laughs> was not poetic. So if I'm the girlfriend, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, you can write that about trees with blood, but this is what I get. Oh. Yeah. It's been an honorable one. <sighs> so John's case was featured on the 1951 radio series, The Black Museum, in an episode called The Jar of Acid. An unproduced Hitchcock project called The Kaleidoscope was inspired by John Hay, and serial killer Neville Heath. Neville killed two young women in 1946 and was put to death in October of 1949 in London. Matt, I've said this before. The UK justice system does not play around. Yeah. Back in the day, they was, they was efficient. Man. In 2002, ITV drama, there was an ITV drama, A is for Acid, which was based on John's story. Actor Martin Clunes played John. You might actually recognize Martin uh, Adam from Doctor Who, the 80s version. Shakespeare oh. Love, Manhunt, or Doc Martin. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. John, okay, so get this. John Hayes' wax work was exhibited at Madame Tussauds in London. He agreed to actually model for the mask, and he even donated his clothing to the exhibit under the condition that the exhibit be kept in pristine condition, including creased trousers, shirt cuffs, and neatly parted hair. The exhibit was actually shut down in 2016. There's a stage play called Under a Red Moon by Michael Slade. It has a fictional account of John Hayes' examination by a psychiatrist before his trial criminal minds had an episode called mastermind which was inspired by john it's season four episode eight and jason alexander plays the villain his name is professor rothschild american thrash death metal band uh, macabre has a song about john hay off of their murder metal album called acid bath vampire And a Japanese metal band called Church of Misery has a song about John Hay called Make Them Die Slowly, John George Hay. It's on there. And then there were none album. And there you go. 
I'm always impressed at how many times Criminal Minds pops up in the the little the postscripts we have. Whoever does their Criminal Minds, like whoever does the research, man, they are like serious true crime people because they really do their research. But there you go. That's the story of uh, John George Hay. The acid bath murderer. And the vampire killer. Or I should just say he was the vampire. He thought. He thought. Like, honestly, if for somebody who like claimed to be a vampire, there was not nearly enough instances of like, he just kind of tossed that in at the end. It felt like, <laughs> you know, it was, it was like, as a kid, I wanted to be a vampire. And then I wanted to see these people melt in the acid. But I did it because I was a vampire. I'm like, Because <laughs> their blood made me mad. So then I put them in acid. Yeah, I was like, ah, I feel like you're just kind of shoehorning the vampire thing in here to make yourself sound crazy. <laughs> Because in the it's, picture, she doesn't look like, doesn't dress like a vampire. No, no. Yeah. None of his made up names are obviously vampire names, like Dr. Acula or something. <laughs> he never tells people he's from Transylvania. Yeah, right. I don't I mean, I, I, I expected a little bit more from someone who, as a child, was obsessed with vampires. <laughs> he never tells people that uh, he's afraid of garlic or holy water. Right, yeah, like, just, like, you gotta sprinkle this stuff in for flavor, my man. You gotta, like, (laughs) you gotta add this. It's like, then later we're all like, oh, he did hate garlic. He slept, he slept in the coffin and only came out at night. It makes so much sense now. So much more sense. He always talked about how the sun was bad for him. Gosh, maybe. (laughs) Oh, man, but there you go. That is the story. Of John George Hay, and that is the B side. So for the A side this week, I had two or three things that I was thinking about doing, and I started to think back about one of my favorite things about movie nights when I was a kid. When we didn't go to the theater, we'd go to Mr. Movies or Hollywood Video or Blockbuster and rent a VHS or a DVD. But the biggest challenge, and I cannot tell you how many hours of my life I spent walking the aisles of Mr. Movies or Hollywood Video or Blockbuster, either by myself or with my family or with my friends in high school or college, trying to find a movie to rent that night. We would spend way, way too long. And you'd walk around, you'd read the back of all the the movies and you'd pick up the cases, you'd check out the art, you'd try to find something you hadn't seen before, which sounded interesting. And it's honestly how I found some of my most favorite movies but there was also a lot of times where we gave something a shot that was just super awful because we'd never heard of it and we didn't know how bad it was and i kind of missed that accidentally falling into stuff because it pops up on you know the shelf as you're walking by and something catches your eye because now everything is curated by you know, the various streams. Like if you watch this, then you'll like this. If you've seen this movie with this actor, then here are five other movies by that actor that you should watch. So it's all connected in some way. But last night I was watching, uh, I was flipping on Amazon Prime and I have been watching a lot of movies. I watched uh, Terminator the other night uh, and I'm not sure what I had watched that got this suggestion for me. 
But a movie popped up that I had never heard of. Didn't have any recollection of it being out in theaters, which is kind of rare because I feel like I have at least heard of a lot of stuff. So to find something that was completely new to me was super exciting. And I clicked on it and I said, why was this, you know, Amazon Prime will then like tell me why it was recommended. And they're like, because you watched Romancing the Stone, you might like this. And I was like, okay, cool. I like Romancing the Stone. Let's watch this movie. And it turns out that that entire idea of Because You Like Romancing the Stone is basically how this movie got made. In 1988, uh, Cindy Lauper, who was uh, a famous pop singer who Girls Just Want to Have Fun, was probably her biggest hit along with True Colors, um, which turns out was a Phil Collins song first. I didn't know. Uh was looking to become a crossover hit, much like uh, Madonna was at the time. They were pop stars that were trying to get into acting and she wanted to get into movies, but she was looking for the perfect role. And the studio had decided that this script, which they described as Romancing the Stone meets Ghostbusters with Temple of Doom involved, was the perfect Cyndi Lauper vehicle. And... (laughs) Right? Because why not? Uh, Cindy Lauper then was assigned, the studio got her signed up and they went around trying to find a leading man to pair her with. And when it's the mid 80s and you've already mentioned Ghostbusters, they were like, hey, let's try to get Dan Aykroyd in. And Dan Aykroyd was like, all right, I might be interested. He checks out the script. He doesn't love the script, but he's going to, you know, pursue it a little bit further, actually meets with Cindy Lauper. And then after meeting with her, Decides he doesn't want to do the movie at all. Dang. <laughs> Drops the movie. So they have to go out and find someone else. And it's the mid eighties and you've got all sorts of leading men. But if you were looking for somebody who kind of matched Cindy Lauper on the kookiness scale at that time, you would stumble upon as the studio did Jeff Goldblum. So as I'm scanning yeah. the screen last night, we've got Cindy Lauper. Jeff Goldblum and Peter Falk, Columbo himself and the dad who reads The Princess Bride to Fred Savage in The Princess Bride is the third star and it's called Vibes. A story of two psychics who have to go and find a secret city of gold in the Andoria or the Andes in Ecuador. Uh, along with Peter Falk and all the hijinks that ensue. It's literally if you took Romancing the Stone, jammed in some Ghostbusters, and then oddly stole the plot from you know, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which didn't come out for another 25 years, and jammed that in there as well. Mm-hmm. It is arguably the worst movie I have ever seen. Oh, wow. Wow. That is saying something. Uh, It, the plot starts out literally the first scene is completely ripped off of the first scene of Ghostbusters in Ghostbusters. They've got, you know, um, Venkman is doing the tests on the different subject about, you know, uh, whether they're psychic and can they see the cards? That is the first scene. They ripped it straight out of Ghostbusters. That's where uh, Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper's characters meet because they're all part of this psychic testing group. Look, if it's then, not broke, don't fix it. The entire movie is 
one ripped off scene after another, even to the point where they rip off a movie that hadn't even been made yet with the Crystal Skull when they get to the Psychic Pyramid at the end. Uh, Cindy Lauper has not figured out how to act yet, so she just plays Cindy Lauper, but Cindy Lauper as a psychic. Jeff Goldblum is trying his best, running around trying to be interesting, given absolutely nothing to do, and given no backstory and the script that makes almost no sense because they just bounce from here to there. Uh, Peter Falk shows up as sort of the Danny DeVito wisecracking character who gets them together to go search for the thing, except he lies the entire time and his lies get figured out by the two psychics because Cindy Lauper speaks to, she's a medium. So she has uh, Louise, her spirit guide and Jeff Goldblum can touch anything and like know everything about it. So he can, touch a table and figured out who's been on that table before or he famously finds out that his love interest has been sleeping with other men because he picks up her underwear and knows that someone else has picked it up it's very weird moments throughout the entire film that just kind of bounce from place to place uh without any rhyme or reason no one seems to have a vested interest in it working They're trying their best, but the script just kind of bounces around until we get to the very end. And spoiler alert, this movie came out in 1988, and I had never heard of it, and I hope no one else has ever heard of it. But I'm going to spoil it so you never have to watch it. (laughs) And when it pops up on Amazon Prime saying, because you like Romancing the Stone, or because you watch Ghostbusters, or because you've seen everything that Jeff Goldblum's ever been in, you should watch this. Don't. Uh, At the very end of the movie, very much like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, there's a giant pyramid that the aliens have put there to encompass all the psychic energy and Cindy Lauper has to be the one to stop the bad guys from stealing the psychic energy the entire movie for about seven eighths of it we're figuring we're trying to find a lost city of gold but then at the very end they're like no it's a psychic pyramid and there's no gold at all and the guy who started this whole thing back in the beginning the doctor who was testing everybody is trying to steal the psychic energy for something you know know what he's going to do with it but he's going to steal it and that's bad uh peter falk gets killed which is awful uh everyone gets shot and then suddenly like is it shot like they get shot and you're like oh that's bad and then like five minutes later they're running like they <laughs> haven't been shot doesn't make any it, it literally feels like somebody said okay let's mash these three movies together we're gonna write this script in one night while we are high on the cocaine that we saw people taking on euphoria and we'll just make it and it'll be great and cindy's offers in it and so it'll make money and we'll just peter falk's there for a check and jeff goldblum is is honestly i love jeff goldblum and i think there's there's been this weird like arc of jeff goldblum's career career where like the fly happens everyone's like oh he's a really you know interesting actor then he has a bunch of horrible movies everyone's like oh he's just weird and goofy and then like jurassic park happens and whoa he's like a leading man and he's an independence day and then you know it just kind of goes up and down and then he's you know a side character in guardians of the galaxy and now he's got this old this tv show on disney plus where he's basically just playing himself playing himself it's it's very weird it's Uh, very meta it's very meta he uh He's had a very interesting career and I have enjoyed very much so much of what he's done, especially because when I was becoming a huge movie fan, Jurassic Park 
and Independence Day were two of the biggest movies. And I thought Jeff Goldblum was a huge star, only to find out later that he was just kind of a guy in, in movies that was the sidekick. Uh, but he's trying his best. If you really love Jeff Goldblum, you could maybe watch this movie. Or if you like a lot of really bad jokes about psychics that don't seem to land anywhere, or if you just want to see Peter Falk kind of getting a paycheck, uh, you can. The best way to describe this film and something that I wish I could do, and hopefully within a few years, this will happen to me, uh, can be described by Roger Ebert in his review from back in 1988 when he gave it one out of four stars. He said, movies like Vibes appear and disappear like fireflies in the dog days of summer. Nobody seems to have made them. Nobody sees them. And nobody remembers them. Five years from now, Goldblum will be asking himself what the title of that movie was that he made in the Andes. For me, it's not nearly going to take that long. Wow. So hopefully I, like Roger Ebert and evidently Jeff Goldblum, can forget that I ever stumbled upon this movie at two in the morning. And I've made a lot of poor decisions in the middle of the night. Uh, but this definitely is one of the worst movie decisions I have ever experienced. So if you see vibes pop up on Amazon Prime, do not click go. Do not uh, watch it. Uh, give yourself $200 and go find anything else to do. Vibes is very, very bad. <laughs> All righty then. You know, talking about Jeff Goldblum, it was really funny. I saw a video of him the other day of him watching people do Jeff Goldblum impressions. So it's <laughs> Jeff Goldblum watching Jeff Goldblum. And it was really pretty funny. He's, I find him very, very hilarious. I wish, I wish that his character in, what was the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, 2? Yeah, two, where, where he plays like the, the warlord. No, no, Thor Ragnarok. I'm sorry. Totally bad. Thor Ragnarok, where he, he plays the warlord on the trash planet. Yes. That was a great character. Yes. Like that, that was so good. And I was like, I would like more of that. Uh, he's, he's just a delight to see in movies. You know, you're going to get something unexpected. Uh, he's also got that whole apartments.com thing where he pr- pretends <laughs> to be like Brad Bellflower or something yeah. like this. This is like Jeff uh, Bezos. Uh, um, what's his name? The guy who did Apple. Um, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, uh, like sort of like knockoff character. And he's been doing it for years. And I'm like, this, like he's really committed to the bit. It just, the character sticks around. So uh, I really like Jeff Goldblum. That's why I was like, maybe this, there's something here. But boy, is there not anything there. Uh, if you're looking for goofy Jeff Goldblum movies from the mid 80s, uh, go watch Earth Girls Are Easy. Because that's Ooh, a much good better one. Film. Yeah. Such a much better film. That was actually the movie that was recommended to me right after uh, I watched and finished Vibes. And I did watch it as a palate cleanser uh, because Vibes was so bad. Oof. That's, that's saying a lot because I feel I've like- watched a lot of bad movies. But I feel like you typically are like, you know, not it's not terrible. You know, like, ah, I might not yeah. watch it again. But I can usually you, find something to enjoy in almost every movie. Some redeeming and was, quality, yes. I, I just, I felt so bad for everyone in it, except Cindy Lauper. Because she seemed like she was having a good time. Everybody else seemed that they were like, you were watching somebody try to cook without ingredients. Mm. You know, it was like a cooking show where they were like, hey, you need to make a cake. And we gave you like 
a loaf of bread, and a spatula in an oven. So see you in an hour. And they're like, okay, I guess we're just going to warm up this bread and call it a cake. Yay. Uh, yeah, it was it was rough. Does so. anybody have any butter for the frosting? <laughs> yeah, do we, do, do we have do we have anything? Oh, yeah, let's let's stack the bread and make it look different. And then maybe people won't realize it's just sliced bread. And that's they're doing the best of what they had. And they were not given much of a script to work with. All right. So there you go. Is that the A side? That is the A side. I got my venting out. I feel a lot better. (laughs) All right. So before we go, you know, we have been following the case of Lauren Smithfields. This is something that this case is like living in my head and I just can't stop thinking about it. Of course, it made national media finally. Um, It was on, I believe it was Good Morning America on like Sunday and then the Today Show, maybe Monday, CBS, um, the CBS Morning Show. What is that one? I can't remember the name of that one with Gail. So all of them have been talking about it. We talked last week that the guy's name was revealed, Matthew LaFountain. And now because it was funny because it was like my mom messaged me on Sunday. It was my birthday. And the first message was about Lauren Smith Fields and how it was on Good Morning America. And then Uh later she was like, oh, yeah, happy birthday. Yeah, yeah, happy birthday. (laughs) But so it hit the media, the national media on Sunday and then Monday. I just think it's real um, convenient timing. Monday, it hit again. And then Monday, the medical examiner's office ruled her death a suicide. But it was a suicide that, or not a suicide, excuse me, an accident. I am so sorry, not suicide, yeah, an yeah, accident. Yeah. They ruled it an accident. But like with all these different drugs in her system and like one report was she was found in a blood-soaked on blood soaked sheets. And then another story is saying that he found her on the floor, but he had spent the night. So how did he find her on the floor? And then, but he was never questioned. It's not, this makes no sense. This is not an accident. This does not sound really long. A really long time for that, for that determination to come out. Yeah. Like why did it take so long? If you know, what was like the the lab backed up? Uh. I don't know this. I, I am going to, I just, I'm going to keep talking about it because I don't believe that it's an accident and her family is suing the police department, you know, for the way they handled the case and you know, the, the true lack of really investigating. And uh, it looks like there might be some big attorneys um, getting involved. Like attorney Crump might be getting involved and he's one that represented um, George Floyd family. Mm -hmm. So, um, I believe if I, I may be, I may be misspeaking and I apologize if I am, but I think that he has, um, jumped on to help the family. So I hope we get some true justice for Lauren very soon. I, I, I honestly, I'm not going to stop talking about it because I, I truly, until the family comes out and says, yes, we had our own, you know, they had the, they hired their own, um, medical examiner to, to do an mm. autopsy. So unless this family comes out and says, okay, we had an independent uh, autopsy and yes, we truly believe that it's an accident. I'm not going to stop talking about it because this sweet girl needs justice. And if somebody, and, and as a bartender and a server who works in a restaurant, if I overserve someone, I, I can be liable for their accidental death. Mm-hmm. At least in the state of Minnesota, 
And so how is, even if this is an accident, how is there not some investigation into the culpability of was, you know, how did she get this drunk or, or how did she have this many things going on in her system? I mean, there, ha- there has to be an investigation on what war was happening here. You don't, don't just like, you wouldn't just be like, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's an accident. Some, you know, people don't get that drunk by themselves. Right. Usually. Right. Yeah. I mean, the human body has a way of just, you know, passing out when it's had too much. It's, it, it feels like there needs to be a little bit of investigation here because clearly something else is something nefarious feels like it was going on. Absolutely. Even if it, even if it was manslaughter, you still investigate it and say, this was negligence or you should, you know, he should have done something to get her help. I'm glad that the national media has finally picked it up and they're still talking about it, even though the medical examiner came out and said that it's an accident. I, I love that the, that they are still covering it because they're, they're saying mysterious death. So they are not, fortunately they have, they have come across as like, Hey, this, this does seem a bit shady. Uh, Cause I know, I think it was the sun newspaper. The article that they put out was here's the thing in media, a lot of times if the victim, if, if the perpetrator is a white male, and we see this all the time, the perpetrator is a white male, you know, they find a really good picture where he looks like some down home, you know, really great guy. And then they'll, the, yeah. the, 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 the true victim, they usually find some kind of quote unquote scandalous photo. So one, they used a photo of her in a bathing suit while he's in like hiking equipment. Like he, he his was like on, uh, on a hike. It's like, why would you okay. use a bathing suit picture for her? Why wouldn't you just use a regular picture for her? And then it was like mm. engineer Matthew and Bumble date. And it's like, come on, come on. They, they know how to, they know how to get people's attention with the, with the headlines and the, the photos. You never <sighs> see the, the, the mug shots of the, of the, you know, or you only see mugshots of certain people. It's right. Yeah. So anyway, we will keep following that. Cause like I said, until the family comes out and says, we accept this, I'm not mm-hmm. going to stop talking about it. I'm just not because I just, there's, there's something more at play here. And, you, um, and you're, I'm seeing it more and more places just randomly. I'll be, you know, going through uh, Facebook stories or your Instagram stories and, and it'll pop up in somebody's feed. It's, it's starting to get more and more uh, attention. So just got to keep doing it. Yep. Just got to keep talking about it. Keep her name out there. Um, but that is another episode that's 79 of a side B side podcast. There's several ways you can support the podcast. Also pictures and sources going to be on the website. A side mm-hmm. B. Oh, sorry. I'm stealing your thunder, Adam. No, that's okay. It's a side b side podcast.square.site. And on that website, if you don't believe me that vibes is horrible and you shouldn't watch it, we have a link to the trailer. Mm-hmm. So you can you can see the trailer. I couldn't watch the trailer. Had I watched the trailer, I probably still would have watched the movie because I'm a sucker. But <laughs> you can watch the trailer and be like, oh yeah, that's 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 not gonna be good. I was like, well. <laughs> yeah. Man. Uh, so the trailer will be there along with um, also uh, pictures from both cases. Well, not case. You didn't have a case. You had a movie, but pictures as well as merch 
Um, you can also get to the podcast itself. We'll have a link um, so that you can listen to the podcast on our website. Uh, you can also go to YouTube. It's on all the streamers. You can support the podcast by going to A-Side, uh, excuse me, buy me a coffee slash buymeacoffee.com slash A-Side B-Side pod. And um, I think we've covered all our bases, Adam. Yeah, like, share. Uh, if if you are somebody listening in England, uh, do you find our police names charming or is it just the other way around? <laughs> Pretty sure it's the other way around. I think we find their names charming and they're, they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you've got stories or movies that like horrible movies you've seen that you think I should watch at three in the morning, uh, let me know. Uh, I'll probably watch them. Uh, Cause I watch everything evidently, except if it's scary. I don't watch scary stuff because I, uh, I don't want to have dreams like John Hay, because uh, that was that was pretty creepy. Yeah, you don't watch them any time of day, let alone three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, I don't like like noon. The sun's out. I'm like, nope, too scary. <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> oh, all right, there we go. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Brooke.